So many of you know who Heinrich Hoffman is? Bonus for anyone who does, I'd be very surprised because I didn't know who he was till earlier this week. But So Heinrich Hoffman was a Christian artist and illustrator and he created one of the most famous paintings in Christianity or at least in Western Christianity. Anyone want to guess what that painting was? That one right there. Christ in Gethsemane, that painting which you'll see replicated in many different ways. It was a painting illustration he did for a series of, for a church, and they also used it in magazine illustrations, but it's been created in many other different ways, including the stained glass here that we have. So we're going to be looking at that story, and so I would invite you, um, even during the sermon, to reflect on the image that is up there. Um, Images we sometimes have a little bit of fear of, we wonder about, but images have been used, art and artwork through the ages as a window, so to speak, to see into something deeper. Um, That sometimes we can see in a piece of art or maybe in a piece of music, a piece of poetry, something that can't be expressed in other ways. And so I would invite you, and it's always a great thing, I always enjoy going to churches that have artwork around, whether it's things like stained glass windows like we have up front or along the walls here, or many artists or many churches will commission artists or sometimes have artists in their own congregation who create works of art. Maybe a quilt, it may be a banner, it may be something like that photograph, something that evokes the beauty and the wonder of God. But here we have a chance, even during this message, and we're going to be looking at this story to see an image here that helps us. So for the last few weeks, or for the last six, eight weeks, we've been looking at the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is this story of Jesus, the Gospel, the good news according to Mark about who Jesus is and what he did. And the central, one of the central themes of the Gospel of Mark as Jesus progresses his life is the thing called the kingdom of God. And so Jesus has been coming and proclaiming the kingdom of God, God's rule and reign through his servant kings over all of creation. And the story of the Bible is we were supposed to be those servant kings, but we chose to follow our own way. We chose to do things our own way. And so God sent Jesus to redeem and to redeem us and to show us what it looks like to serve and live as the servant king. So we've been moving along through the gospel of Mark. The last few weeks, we've kind of slowed down to focus on the last week of Jesus' life. And there's a whole series of events. And the series of events often find themselves, they're often pointers to something more. So we began with Palm Sunday, the story that Jan talked about a little bit here, where Jesus rides in on a donkey, and the people are waving palm branches and throwing down their coats and and shouting, Hosanna. But Jesus is riding in on a donkey, which is a deliberate sign, a pointer to say, echoing back to the prophet Zechariah, I am the Messiah, I am the King, I am the one coming to be the Savior. The next day he goes into the temple. The temple, the center of worship, the center of God's presence there. And he does a series of signs. He curses a fig tree and he flips over the tables. And he's saying, this temple as you see it now isn't working. You as my people aren't being the people you're called to be. And so now we're going to renew the temple. There's going to be a new temple. Later in the week, he's at dinner with a man named Simon. And a woman comes in and pours oil over him and Jesus says, She has anointed me for my burial, which is again a sign that he's going to be buried, but 
He won't need to be anointed after he's buried because he's not going to stay dead. And then finally, on the eve of Passover, this great celebration of the people of God when they remember God's liberation out of slavery, he has a meal with them. And um, theologian, scholar N.T. Wright says it this way. He says, it's interesting that when it came the time, Jesus didn't give them a lecture. Jesus didn't give them a theology treatise. What Jesus gave them was a meal. And so he gives them this meal and there's this sim- symbolism when he takes the cup and he says, this is the new covenant. This is the covenant written in my blood, pointing back to the covenant God made with his people at, at Sinai, but a sign, a seal of God's commitment to his people and how Jesus would die the next day to bring them freedom, to bring them forgiveness of sins. And so we're picking up the story shortly after this supper. So they have this meal together, this Passover meal where they eat and as they're going out, Just before this, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, you're all going to fall away. I mean, Jesus is not real good at pep talk sometimes. He essentially says to his followers, he said, you're all going to abandon me. I mean, he's already told them at dinner one of them is going to betray him. And now he says, you're all going to fall away. And their first inclination is to say, no, 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 not me. We would never do that, especially Peter. He says, no, no, I would never. Everybody else might, but I'm not going to. And sometimes we're tempted to pick on Peter. To say, oh, Peter, he's so full. But I don't think Mark is trying to make us think poorly of Peter. In fact, I think Mark is trying to tell us that Peter honestly believes he can, he can do it. That Peter honestly, he's not just kind of puffing himself up. He's like, no, 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 I can. I mean, he believes in his heart of hearts that he can stay faithful. And so when it comes time when he betrays him, spoiler alert, ahead in the story when when Peter does exactly that and he begins to weep, we're invited in some sense to weep with Peter. To understand the frailty and that's part of what we get at in this story here. So then we pick up where Susan read it. It says they went to a place called Gethsemane and Gethsemane is simply a Hebrew Aramaic word that means the olive press. And so they were on the Mount of Olives so Could have been a cave, could have been a garden, could have been a place where they press the olives. And they go out to there, and Jesus says, sit here while I pray. And then he takes Peter, James, and John, which were these three disciples that he often took to particular places. He had taken them earlier in the story of Mark, when he had gone up on the mountain and he had been transfigured, he had taken Peter and James and John. But something else to think about with Peter and James and John is that they've shown up a couple other times in the story. James and John, not much before this, have said to Jesus, Jesus, when you come in your power, let me sit at your left and at your right. And Jesus asked them, can you drink the cup which I'm about to drink? Okay, so we have cup in my mind, and then we go to that meal they've just been at where Jesus has taken the cup and said, this cup what? Is the new covenant. And so, James and John have said, and they both said, oh yeah, of course we can. And now we've just had Peter say, I'm not going to fall away. So we're also thinking in the back of our mind, Peter, James, and John have been going all along saying, we're good. You know, Jesus, we will stick by you. And so Jesus says, come on, Peter, James, and John, follow me. And then it says, he says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. My soul 
is overwhelmed with sorrow. And so there's this echo in part of Psalm 42, which is this picture of someone praying to God and it's this cry out where it feels like everyone is against me and all the people around are mocking and saying, oh, your God has abandoned you. But I think also what's going on in this is we're invited to realize that Jesus had these deep emotions. That Jesus was a person. Jesus was a human. He was like us. It's tempting to sometimes think of Jesus as this this robot, this incredible, you know, we see even in these pictures sometimes, oftentimes in the paintings, what he's this bright, shining figure and there's a halo behind his head and, and it's almost as if he walks through and nothing bothers him. You hear Jesus saying, whatever is about to happen, and we're not being invited to psychoanalyze Jesus and try and figure out what's going on, but we are invited to notice that he is deeply wrecked. I mean, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And many of you sitting here know what that's like. To have sorrow washing over you, to have it pressing down on you, to have it crushing down on you, and you just can't move, and almost to the point where it feels like it's going to kill you. And this is where Jesus is at at this point, is he is about to enter into this becoming sin He who knew no sin will become sin for us. He will take our penalty. He will die in our place. And there's all these things going on. But Jesus is feeling and experiencing these emotions. And I think we're invited to notice that, to realize that Jesus understands what it's like for us when we experience that. I know sometimes we talk to people about it. And for example, when I was early in my ministry career, before we had children, and Christine and I did children's ministry. And so sometimes people would come to us and say, oh, well, you don't know anything about children's ministry. Why? Because we didn't have kids. And so sometimes there's the belief that unless somebody's gone through it, they don't understand. And there's something partly to that. And so there might be a temptation to think, well, how would God know what it's like? How would Jesus, when I go to prayer and I'm suffering and I'm hurting, We can go to prayer knowing that Jesus understands. Because Jesus has been there. He doesn't just have a theory about it. He he doesn't just have an idea. But when we come in those moments where we feel like the sorrow is overwhelming us, when we feel like we're being overwhelmed, when we feel like we don't know what to do, when we feel like nothing will help us, we go to Jesus and Jesus knows what it's like to have been there. So Jesus has told them, he says, my soul is overwhelmed. And then he says, stay here and keep watch. And he's going to go off at a distance and pray. So keep watch. And keep watch is, you kind of wonder, well, what what are they watching for? Are they watching for somebody to interrupt Jesus? Are they watching? But I think the language of keep watch has something deeper to it. It's it's saying something more. It's, It's a language that's saying, There's something else. Because if we've been paying attention in the story, this language has come up before. In fact, just a chapter before in chapter 13 um, of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus has said this to his followers. He says, he's gone through this whole list of all these horrible things that are going to happen and he's talking about things that are going to happen. He says, therefore, keep watch. 
And the language of keep watch is this picture of staying alert, of being faithful. And so in some sense, we might, if we wanted to, substitute where it says, therefore, keep watch. It says, therefore, stay faithful. And interesting, in this verse here, he says, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. And some commentators have noticed something there because in the story of Mark as it goes along, it says, when evening came, they had dinner. And then they all go out to the garden, and though it doesn't use the term midnight, it talks the middle of the night. And then it says, or when the rooster crows, which again shows up in the story with Peter. And then at dawn, and Mark says, and at dawn he stood trial. And so there's this language where Jesus, in part when he says, keep watch, he's telling Peter, James, and John, he's saying, I want you to stay faithful. I want you to endure because this is going to be hard times because back in Mark 13, that's exactly what Jesus talked about. He said, there's going to be all kinds of trials. There's going to be tribulations. There's going to be challenges. Therefore, keep watch. And it wasn't the idea of, oh, just when trouble's coming, just keep your eyes out there. It's saying, stay faithful. And so when Jesus tells Peter, James, and John to keep watch, he's saying, I want you to remain faithful because troubles are coming, challenges and trials are coming. And so then we're going to skip ahead and just go quickly through the story and then kind of come back to what goes on. So Jesus, at this point, he goes off to pray. And it says that going a little farther, he fell down to the ground and prayed. And so typically, a Jewish person would pray kind of standing up with their arms outraised. I mean, we've all learned, or many of us have learned what when we pray, we fold our hands, close our eyes, and bow our head. Typical Jewish prayer was hands up raised, looking to heaven, and typically praying out loud. Even if you were just praying by yourself, you would pray out loud. So there's a chance, a good chance that when Jesus went off to pray, that Peter, James, and John could probably hear him praying. But it doesn't say that he stood with his arm. It says says he fell to the ground. And that's kind of this, where he lays down because, again, what he had been, what? overwhelmed with sorrow. I mean, this is so desperate where there's this desperation where he just falls down on on the ground before him and he's laying on the ground and prostrate before God and he's calling out to God. And so he comes and he prays for a while, then he goes back and he finds the disciples. So Jesus has been battling for our salvation. Jesus has been engaged in a cosmic struggle And Jesus goes back and finds his disciples with another kind of struggle. Their eyelids are a little heavy. They can't say, you know, know, imagine maybe Peter, James, John. I wasn't sleeping. I was just resting my eyes, right? And so here he comes and he says, he comes back and he says to them, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? He says, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Again, there's that language, stay faithful. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus goes off again to pray, comes back. What are the disciples doing? Sleeping. Jesus once again says, okay, keep watch. Goes back to pray. Comes back. And yet again, are you still sleeping and resting? And so there's a sense where sleeping isn't simply the fact that he came back and found them snoring. 
It wasn't that he simply came back and they were, they were out. It's that they came back and they weren't keeping watch. And so in the same way we said keep watch equals stay faithful, to sleep means to not be faithful. To not endure, not to pass through the challenge and the temptation. But I want to go back and I want to focus on what Jesus prayed because we're told what that is. And kind of here's the key where we want to focus on some of the lessons. Um, but one thing before we do that, it just something that occurred to me or that I was reading about this week was noticing that Jesus was going through this trial and this challenge and he was off and he was praying and he was, he was struggling with what he was going to do and facing in Christ. And he comes back and while we might read it as he's kind of berating the disciples, he's really what? He's, he's, he's saying, you're going to face challenges. I need you to stay alert. And it's almost as if Jesus, even though all those other things are going on, he still cares about his disciples. He's still taking care of them and says, guys, you know, keep watch. There are going to be hard times. You need to stay faithful. You need to be doing what I'm doing instead of what you're doing. And so Jesus, in the midst of all his challenges and trials, comes back. But I want to focus on the words of Jesus' prayer. And so Jesus, in uh, verse 36, he comes to pray and he says, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And now I realize none of us are going to face the same challenges that Jesus faced. Not that same exact challenge. None of us give our life as a ransom for many. None of us are a substitute. None of us take on the sins of the world. But we face challenges. We face trials. We face temptations. And and when Jesus is talking temptations here, he isn't talking about the third piece of pizza or buying that new pair of shoes that you've really been wanting. That's not the kind of temptation that he's talking about. The temptation is to not trust in God. The temptation is to not obey God. The temptation is to not do what God has called us to do. And so it can face us at work sometimes. If someone's encouraging us and maybe we're being told by our boss to to report a slightly different set of numbers than are what reality is. It's a temptation in school to join in with the group who's picking on the child on the outside. The temptation to let anger overtake us and get the best of us. And so Jesus serves as an example here for us in how we might pray. And so I want us to think about four short lessons that we might take from Jesus as he's teaching us about what it looks like to face temptation and what it looks like to deal with those. And the first is this, that Jesus recognized the only way to be ready is prayer. Is that's how you face and that's how you deal with these things. And I think about Jesus and what he faced. And he's saying watching is the opposite of sleeping. And what he's asking for is faithful discipleship. And so he's saying, when you come to the challenges, when you come to the trials, don't rely on your own strength. 
Don't rely on what you can do. And so a number of years ago, I read a study and this um, psychologist had interviewed a large number of pastors and these, many of these pastors had had, had um, moral failings, which is just an awful euphemism for they had, done, they had sinned against others in the midst of this thing. And what he found was most of them had had some sort of rules in place. And I talked a couple weeks ago about the Rabbi Zacharias. I mean, and many of these followed kind of the, the right procedures, although they, usually what we find is people who want to violate and work around the procedures, they'll find a way to work around them. But what Jesus is saying here is when we come to the trial and when we come to the temptation to not rely on our own strength, to not be like a Peter, like, oh, no, 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 I'm never going to do that. If we think about it, what would have been the response or what might or should have been the response that Peter should have taken when Jesus said, all of you are going to fall away? Instead of saying, no, no, I've got it in me to stand up, just instead turn to God and say, God, I need your help to face this trial and temptation. And so Jesus is inviting us in the same way when we face a trial and temptation. He's saying, turn to God. Jesus was the Son of God. Jesus lived a life without sin. Jesus spent a lifetime in communion with God. Yet when the trial came, what does he still do? He goes to prayer. So if any of us thinks we don't need to pray when we face a trial and temptation, we're wrong. Because that's what Jesus does. We're invited to live like Jesus. So if we face a trial, let's do like Jesus and turn to be ready through prayer. So how does Jesus pray? He approaches God as a trusting child. He says, Abba, Father. He comes to God in complete trust. Now what's interesting here is if we look back through the story of Mark and the other encounters of Jesus and the other time we see God showing up early in his life. Jesus is baptized and it says the heavens split open and there's a voice from heaven saying, this is my son whom I love. Later on the mountain of transfiguration where again there's these glowing on the cloud split, there's another voice, this is my son, listen to him. I want you to pay attention to what the voice says here in this story. What does the voice from heaven say in this story? Nothing. There is no voice from heaven, is there? There's simply silence, which, how many of you have ever encountered that when you've gone to God in prayer? When you've been crying out and you feel like what? Your prayers are bouncing off the sky. There is no reassuring, booming voice saying, you are my child whom I love. There is nothing. But Jesus knew and trusted in God because he had a lifetime of experience. He knows that God cares and loves for him based on a life of prayer. So what Jesus is inviting us to do is to say, we go to God as a trusting child, approaching him as a father who loves and cares for us, and even if in that moment we don't hear the voice, even if we don't do it, we know that that's who God is. And we know it based on a life of prayer. We know it based on what the Scripture has told us. We know it based on the testimony of others. Which is why sometimes it's so valuable to read Christian history, to listen to stories of people, to hear about missionaries, to hear about 
ordinary saints, as I would call them, the people who just who live their life following Jesus, because as you listen to those stories, these testimonies, it's a reminder that God is faithful. And so Jesus reminds us of that too, that even though there's no voice at that moment, even though there's no cry, that Jesus knows what God is like and that God is a good, good father and that he can come as a trusting child. But then Jesus prays and he says, take this cup from me. And again, it's a reminder from Jesus that it's okay when you're facing a challenge and trial to say, God, I don't want this to happen. There's nothing in the Bible that says you have to suffer. Now, the Bible does say we will face trials and challenges and suffering, but we don't need to go looking for them. And when you're getting ready to face that situation, it's perfectly okay to say to God, God, could you take this away? Could you take this challenge and this trial away? It's okay to say that. But at the same time, Jesus finishes the prayer and says, but not my will, but what you will. So we plead to be spared, but in the end, we submit our will to God, to the will of God. You know, we can beg and say, God, but then at the end, we say that prayer, not my will, but your will. Which is one of the hardest prayers to pray. It's one of the craziest prayers to pray. It's one of the most dangerous prayers to pray because we don't know what God is going to do. But we, in the end, we put ourselves in God's hand, going back to that beginning thing, saying, why? Because we know God is a good father. And so we submit to his will and to what he's going to do. So Jesus is our example in this. Jesus serves as our example in prayer. He says the only way to be ready is through prayer, that we approach God as a trusting child. We plead to be spared, but in the end, submit to the will of God. But beyond that, about teaching us to pray, I think the thing that we also must remember in the midst of this is we're reminded that Jesus is the truly faithful one. That we might stumble and fall. We might fall asleep. We might not be ready. We might not always do what God is. We might not always submit to the will of God. But Jesus did. And he continues to pray for us. And he offered his life so that we can be forgiven when we stumble and when we miss. So in the midst of the story, while we can remember the lessons and examples of Jesus... I would also ask us to keep our eyes on Jesus who is the truly faithful one. The one who remained true to the end and in spite of the pain and the suffering did that for our sake. Sorrow to the point of death but he did what God asked and what God asked of him what the Father asked of him and what he agreed to was to give his life as a ransom for us. And so we may, may we look to ex Jesus as our example, but also as our Savior. The one who endured so that we might have life. May we look to his example and may we trust in him. Amen.